0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Do our experiences of consciousness take place within space and time? We certainly imagine ourselves as existing within time and space. However, all we can ever truly experience is the present. And within the present moment, there is no direct experience of past or future. Since there is no map reference for being or consciousness, should we abandon the idea that experiences take place in time and space? Could consciousness exist somewhere else entirely? To help us understand the arrows of time, we have renowned multiverse theorist Laura Mercini houghton legendary physicist, writer, and broadcaster Paul Davis, post-postmodern philosopher Hilary Lawson, and philosopher of science Craig Callender, locking horns over the hours of time. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Sarah Walker.
2: Might consciousness operate in an entirely different sphere outside the world of space and time? Or is space and time the only reality and our experience a snapshot through which we must make sense of the world? We're going to find out the answers to these questions or at least try to um, in the next hour. Um, so before getting there, let me introduce our illustrious speakers. Um, we have four great panelists today. Uh, the first is Paul Davies, who is a world renowned physicist and best selling author. He works on the big questions of existence, including the origin of the universe and the origin of life. Uh, We also have Craig Callender, who is a leading expert on the philosophy of time. His work exploring everything from quantum mechanics to the metaphysics of time and time travel. So all kinds of exciting stuff. Welcome Craig. And then we have Laura Mersini-Hooten, who is a world leading theoretical physicist and professor at the University of North Carolina, whose work focuses on the birth of our universe, she is a pioneer in multiverse theory. Welcome, Laura. And um, we also finally have Hilary Lawson, who is a philosopher and renowned critic of philosophical realism, best known for his theory of closure, which argues that we close the openness of the world with our thought and language. So we can see we have a, quite a diverse group. It's gonna be a really fun discussion. So we're gonna lead in uh, with a question about whether or not we should abandon the idea that experience takes place in time and space. And Craig, I'm gonna start with you.
3: Okay, Uh, my answer is no. Uh, We should not abandon the idea that experience takes place in time and space. Let me say something that I think is uncontroversial and then something that maybe will stir the pot and be controversial. Well, I think it's clear our experience takes place in time it takes time for our brain to create the thing that we call experience, especially if you reflect on, you know, things like your experience of music or something, you know, what just happened will affect what, how that experience is. But if the idea behind the question is that somehow, you know, there are all these proposals in quantum gravity that we could be living in a fundamentally timeless world, well then somehow you're going to have to explain how you're going to get this temporal experience out of this timeless realm and there are many proposals that physicists have made to do this, but and here, here's maybe the controversial thing. I, I, so far, I don't think they succeed. So that is, they tend to you know, take this timeless realm and then make some assumptions and then get time out. But I think you know, it's very hard to do this. No time in, no time out. If you look in the fine details, often what happens is people will sneak time in when they're getting time out. And so people will say things like, well, time emerges at a certain energy level. Well, what does emerge mean? How, how do you define uh, energy without time? People will say, well, if you would assume certain approximations, then time emerges. Well, why are those approximations justified if they're only justified because things are moving slowly, big thing, big, heavy gravitational things are moving slowly with respect to light things, which are moving fast. Well, then again, you've snuck time in. And so I think there's a lot of sneaking of time in in order to try to recover time from no time. And so that's why I, I think uh, we are, like it or not, stuck with time.
2: All
0: right, so we got a firm no from you. Excellent. Laura, what's your opinion? The short answer is also no with the correction that uh, what we experience is not the present, but it is the instant before the present. By the time we have processed uh, our awareness, we we are uh, processing something that happened in the past. So I, I can turn that whole argument around and say, that uh, we exist in the past rather than the present or the future. Certainly, consciousness is part of uh, our bodies and, and we exist in space and time. The more interesting question in, in that case would be why does the biological era of time agree with the cosmic era of time determined by the expansion of the universe or the thermodynamics? era of time, which is um, determined by the increase in entropy. The biological era of time, of course, would be associated with the process of aging. I don't have the answer to that. So the era of time is a mystery. Over a decade ago, we organized the conference and, and Paul gave a uh, fascinating talk there about these problems. But um, if I were to, to think, At a deeper level, in in terms of all the mysteries associated with time, the arrow of time, why do we have an arrow of time and why all these different arrows, like the ones I mentioned, thermodynamic, cosmic, or biological, agree with each other? Imagine a universe where the biological arrow goes in in the reverse direction. So we get younger as, as, uh, as the universe expands. Um, Another question, of course, is the very nature of time. So in in that sense, I can't answer your question because we don't know the nature of time at the fundamental level. To me, the the most fascinating mystery of all the questions that we can pin on on time is why do the laws of nature, of our trusted and and, uh, cherished theories, don't have an air of time built into them? You, you can think of Maxwell's equations or, or quantum mechanics that uh, Craig just uh, uh, mentioned, or general relativity for that matter, and, and you can send time to minus time, reverse, past, and future, and um, those equations are still satisfied. So how can we have theories that don't have an era of time built into them and still describe a universe where there clearly is an era of time. And and therefore us as a species in this universe.
2: universe. Excellent, that's a very deep insight. Um, Hilary, what is your perspective on whether or not we should abandon the idea that experience takes place in space and time?
4: Thank you, Sarah. Well, I think in some ways uh, the question at least implicitly has it the wrong way around i'd argue uh, that experience uh, does need to take place in s- space and time or at least something like what we refer to as currently space and time perhaps you know necessarily so but that space and time do not describe the ultimate character of the universe and so why did i think this well as far as the first point is concerned, it, it's, it's a little bit more than a couple of hundred years since the uh, European philosopher Kant argued that uh, experience, in order to be experience, uh, has to have the form of space and time. I mean, exactly the words he'd use, I'm not going to use Kantian vocabulary, but that he was saying that our experience necessarily has to be this form, and his argument which is sometimes referred to as a transcendental argument, has echoed through the history of Western thought. It's often seen to be you know, technical and difficult, but actually the core of it is relatively easily expressed. And it's this idea that in order to be experienced, we have to experience something. Uh, there has to be an experience of something. Experience is experience of something, otherwise it wouldn't be experience. And in order to be experienced of something, we have to be able to identify that other as an other. And his argument was that, in order to do that you 've got to be able to divide it into objects, and in order to have objects, you have to have something like space and time because without space and time you can 't hold any individual particular as this particular thing because if there's no you know, if there 's no space then it, it, then you 've got everything as it were you 've got no, no way of dividing things up, and if you have all of time then you also have no way of holding things as a particular so his argument is We need a framework of space and time and this was updated in in analytic philosophy through P.F. Strawson in in the 20th century, who who argued the same thing, dumped most of Kant's uh, metaphysics, but held the basic idea that space and time is essential for us to have experience at all. We couldn't have experience of something without that. However. As far as the physical story about what's going on out there, you know, there are a number of different models of that. We've had, obviously, Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics and quantum physics and the way that we use space and time in everyday language. And they're all different. They are, in fact, they're incompatible, I would argue. And that's because they're models of, of, of the universe. They're not, they don't reach through to say how it is ultimately. And um, they can be very powerful and we can improve those models. But I'm certainly going to argue that they don't somehow uncover the essential character of the universe. So I think the universe may not be essentially about space and time. But as far as experience is concerned... I think we need something like space and time, you know, and I say something like because space and time are the words in a particular language, particular culture and time and so forth, but something like that structure.
2: So space and time is the language we use to describe the reality we experience.
4: Exactly, and, and that, we, that we need to in order to get experience off the ground.
2: Great. Um, Okay, so Paul, um, what is your perspective? Do you agree with uh, Craig and Laura that it's a no, hard no, or with Hillary that it's a little bit more subtle than that, that it's about how we describe our own experience?
5: Like all good discussion questions, it was ridiculous. Whenever I think about consciousness, that is our experience, I feel dizzy. I'm a physicist, and so the things I'm most confident about are the, the basic architecture of the universe, the stuff that it contains, Uh, and space and time, we like to join them together. Space-time, the scaffold, or if you like, the stage on which the great drama of nature is acted out, uh, which also becomes part of the cast because space-time is dynamic. There's a lot we understand, but there's a lot of things we don't understand. And uh, I've got the big five that keep me awake at night. And I suppose the one that I've been most obsessed with through my career is Does time have a beginning? Has there always been time? Or did time begin with the Big Bang? Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century said the world was made with time and not in time. And he made that statement for theological reasons. But physics can also provide for time to have an abrupt start. Whether that was the case in the Big Bang, we don't know. Is the universe eternally old or is something, maybe not the universe, but was there always something or was there uh, a beginning of time, and also the lovers' refrain. You know, I will love you till the end of time. And is that, you know, any time soon? You know, can there be an end of time? So we had the same problem. The other speakers have alluded to this mysterious arrow of time. We're all convinced that tomorrow will be different from yesterday. If you play a movie backwards, everybody laughs because it looks so preposterous. So it's obvious that there is this directionality in nature. Uh, But what's the source of that? We think it has something to do with the universe starting out in a very smooth condition gravitationally. Why did it? How did it get in that condition? We don't know. Uh, And then we have this overwhelming impression that time is flowing or moving. I think we're going to come back to this. I don't think time does move. I think this is an illusion. I've also... I've been fascinated by the idea ever since I was a teenager of time travel. We know you can travel into the future. That's a done deal. Physics provides for that. But can you go back in time? Go back and change the past? What does that mean? So deeply problematic. And finally, in my last few seconds, is time truly fundamental? We like to say space-time. Is space-time truly fundamental or is it made up of something? In the case of time, chronons, if you like, something of that sort. We don't know.
2: All right. Excellent. Um, so so this is uh, already deeply intriguing. So we're moving from the idea that space and time are just the language that we use to describe reality, all the way to time being fundamental, or the fact that most of our theories don't naturally accommodate time. And then time has to be an emergent property from those theories. So somehow we feel like we experience time, but it's not embedded in the way we understand the laws in a natural way. So our next uh, question is, how should we understand time and space then, given this variety of perspectives? What's the direction? How do we move forward? Laura, do you want to start us on that?
0: (laughs) How do we understand space and time? Uh, So the associated um, question to that is, are those truly fundamental, as as, uh, Paul hinted a minute ago? Or... um, are they an immersion phenomena, meaning uh, they, they were created and they showed up for the first time with the creation of the universe? Mm-hmm. That question is far from uh, settled in physics, and uh, I, I think the, the two big camps of thought are those that say space and time are, uh, or at least time, is fundamental. There is a before the the origin popped in uh, the universe popped into existence, and those that uh, say, as uh, uh, Stephen Hawking put uh, poetically, uh, paraphrasing Saint Augustine, uh, "There is hell to pay for those that ask uh, what was there before the Big Bang." So, depending what, which camp you, you uh, fall into, um, will will determine the answer to your question. I. I happen to believe that um, time is fundamental because um, I I, uh, find it hard to take the view that we're forbidden from asking the question, what was there before our universe existed? I mean, after all, our universe is only 13.8 billion years old, which is a large time scale but not inconceivable. So, in that case, asking what was there uh, 14 billion years or 15 billion years ago is not a far fetched question. And we should be allowed to ask that if time emerged at the Big Bang at, at, uh, at the start of our universe, I'm using the Big Bang loosely to indicate uh, cosmic inflation. But if time started there, then uh, the word before, which is in the context of time, would not make sense. And therefore, our question. What was there before, or what is there beyond the horizon of our universe, wouldn't uh, make sense either. In that case, we are pretty much limiting our range of, of uh, questions and, and digging deeper into the nature of uh, reality. So, that, that's uh, part of the reason why, um, why I think that time is a fundamental parameter, while the era of time perhaps emerges at the Big Bang because something that wasn't there a second ago suddenly pops into existence and, and stuff happens after, so that, that's uh, sufficient to break the time symmetry and, and um, help us distinguish between yesterday and tomorrow. So in, in that sense, uh, the era of time uh, can emerge with the with, uh, emergence of the universe, but time itself, the nature of time is, is uh, of fundamental importance. Another reason why I think time is fundamental is um, quantum mechanics. We
2: can get maybe into that in a few minutes, but I I was going to ask Paul actually to clarify a point because this has brought up a few points, but I think might um, be a point of, uh, you know, trying to articulate what is the actual distinction between the flow of time and the ordering of time. So Paul, maybe you could elaborate on these two notions of time that Laura introduced and explain that for our audience so they're on the same page with sort of the natures of the nuances of the debate that we're having. Yeah, this is is
5: where I probably part company with uh, everybody else uh, and maybe all my physics colleagues as well because I have said uh, time does not flow, time does not pass, it's an illusion, I think I said. Uh, And what do I mean by that? That's not to say there isn't an arrow of time uh, and the difference is uh, if you imagine taking a movie and uh, it, with an old-fashioned camera uh, with a film strip, uh, cutting the film up into frames, uh, and then stacking the frames up, you don't have to run the movie to see that there's an asymmetry. You look down through that stack. There's a structural asymmetry. The universe in the past was more ordered than it will be in the future. There's a one-way slide towards a state of degeneration and decay. It's very depressing. The universe is dying. But that means it must have started out in a more ordered state. And indeed, uh, it did uh, in a more gravitationally ordered state. It was actually gravitationally very smooth at the beginning. And it's become more and more clumpy over time. And that's driving all sorts of other processes. But that's time asymmetry. Don't we feel time moving? Don't we feel time flowing? Well, we do. We do. But I think what is changing is not time. Time can't move. How fast would it move? One second per second. It's meaningless. Uh, so time can't change. We change. So we have this sense of a self. Uh, and we all think that we have a sort of permanent self, uh, a constant, uh, unchanging, immutable self. But that's that's the illusion. From moment to moment, we're slightly different people. And from year to year, we're really rather very, very different people. And it's we who is changing or passing or flowing or moving, not time. That's my position.
2: Thanks. So Laura brought up this interesting point about these two camps that think uh, time is either fundamental or not and made some strong arguments about why she thinks it's fundamental. And Paul's now articulated a few features about, you know, it, it's a part of our perception um, that it actually flows because, you know, our self is not Permanent. So Craig, I actually uh, was a little deeply intrigued by your, your point about time, you know, no time in, no time out, because we keep talking about time as this emergent property. And, and Laura mentioned these two camps. Do both camps actually fundamentally disagree on time? Or do you think we're just always sneaking, sneaking it in? And time is always an input in how we're talking about these things.
3: Yeah. So if if we went back to uh, what Hillary said, you know, so we have all these different models of time from different branches of science. So we in regard to this question: of How should we understand time and space? You know, then the official answer, as Laura said, is we don't know because we don't know how to reconcile these different models. And in particular, we know we have to reconcile them because we our quantum model, our best theory of the small, uh, conflicts with our relativistic model our best theory of the big. And so which way you go, you know, will dictate, you know, how you reconcile this conflict will dictate, you know, the the time will fall out in some way or the other. So time seems very important to quantum theory, because it's so deeply entwined in quantum theory in in terms of its connection to probability and probability current going through time, that if you then think that you're gonna reconcile this conflict by going in a more quantum direction, then you're probably thinking that, that time is going to be sorry I've got a dog in the background the uh issue you, you might be more partial to a. uh so if you think quantum mechanics is your more firm hint as to the future then you might be more pro-time if you think relativity which already you know general relativity already kind of destroys time in, the, in many senses already and so then If you think that's the the best hint you you might you know be more tempted to think that there's not really going to be that much left of time when quantum gravity is done and so which way to go to the extent that both camps end up denying that there's any time then i i think they have big troubles because ultimately all your experiments are all measurements of things in time and you're gonna have to explain all of that stuff and you don't want to be in some sort of incoherent perspective where you have where your theory is like self undermining by its own evidence, you know, you know, where all the evidence is in time, and yet you can't explain how it comes about that, that you get that evidence. Yeah, so I, I think it's conceivable, it's logically conceivable that there's no time at the bottom. So I don't think that it's like absurd or anything like that. But I, I've yet to see something that doesn't do this kind of cheating move.
2: So if you don't, you don't put it, you don't trick it and put it in there, you don't get it out. Right. It seems to me that a lot of what's been articulated is we don't really have a clear notion even what it means exactly when we talk about time. And I'm wondering if that's in part because our experience is like time is not just one thing even in the language of how we describe it from our experience. So Hilary, I'm wondering what your perspective on, maybe we can't pin this down because we use these words space and time, as you were saying in the introduction, to describe sort of the qualities of our experience, but our experience might be so multiple multifaceted. It's not necessarily one thing that we're really talking about.
4: Well, I'd like to, I think, distinguish between, as I tried to do initially at the beginning, distinguish between our physical stories about the, our stories about the physical world and about how we describe our experience. So our stories about the physical world do have incompatible accounts of time, I'd argue, and there's the, there's the block Uh, universe, as Paul was describing, is is traditionally seen as the Einsteinian uh, perspective, space-time perspective, in which there is no flow and it's all just all given in one go and so forth and there are obviously a lot of issues about that because it doesn't seem to square with our own experience uh, there are absolutist versions of time more newtonian framework in which the space and time are really out there it's not totally obvious what the quantum uh, theory of time is i think it's got some of the characteristics of our everyday use of time but they're all accounts are models of what the physical universe is and i would take the view that but they are just that, they are models. They help us intervene in certain areas. They can be very powerful. We can refine the models in certain areas. We can have a conversation about how they, whether they need to be compatible or not but they're not the same thing as the universe. They're a human construction. They're human theories. They're the output of a particular organism at a particular point in the universe at a particular time. And to imagine that they've somehow reached through to say how the universe is ultimately seems to me a strange sort of hubris and that we should see them like that. But there's a separate point about time, which is in terms of our experience, as far as our experiences are said, In order to have experience at all, and it's in order to be able to have consciousness at all, we have to be able to experience something. Mm-hmm. And in order to experience something, we've got to divide it into individual things for there to be a thing that the whole thing is. And in order to do that, uh, I do buy the argument that you need some sort of structure which does the... S- Work that the word space and time do, does, which is it somehow provides a grid in which it's possible to have particulars. And if we didn't have particulars, we couldn't have experience. So I think there is something fundamental in that, although I wouldn't want to say it's the word space and time. You know, there's a whole argument about Hopi Indians and and how they describe it, but there is there is something about the necessary form of that sort of grid in order for us to be able to get uh, experience off the ground at all, which I I do buy.
2: So our experience is telling something like time exists, but it may not be the sort of models and notion of time as we currently describe them, or we might not ever be able to build a model that's actually well, the reality. Well, of
4: time. I wouldn't say that it, time exists. It's just that in order for us to have experience, we need a framework of something like space and time, um, and it doesn't make any sense, I think, to say, well, we're just you know we could get rid of that because we couldn't we couldn't have experience in the first place, but. I don't think that means that time exists in moving to the physical model of the universe. I think that's a model. It's a model and, and, it, uh, and it's a useful way of thinking about the world. It might enable us to intervene effectively or ineffectively. But it, we've, not, we've not become God and been able to look down at the universe and see, see how it is. Because we're not God. We're, we're humans on a particular bit of the world, a particular brain and a particular way of thinking.
2: So I, I'm very much in agreement with you on that. I'm always making the argument that we're observers inside the universe, not outside of it. Um, so we can't take-
3: I, I wonder if I could just push back a little bit against uh, just a little bit on that last bit. So I agree there's all the different models, but, I don't, I, but maybe I think Hillary, I'm a bit more tempted to be a kind of realist. I mean, who knows what the nature of space and time is, but on the other hand, you know some models are good, some are bad. I believe that there are tables and chairs. I've got models of tables and chairs, and I believe those things exist. What does strike me is, you know, that relativity is one of the only sciences that actually explicitly takes time as a, as its target of study, and it's extraordinary. I mean, the, the 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 level of evidence for it is just absolutely extraordinary. And so I I think if that model is more like the table and chair model where I have a lot of credence in it and I'd have to really be blown away by something to to really want to doubt it too much. So just that it's true, it's created by us, but so is the table and chair models. I, yeah, so I didn't want to sort of diss it too much just because it's a model and it might be wrong.
2: Is there the possibility of actually reconciling them from your perspective? Um, If there's yes. this contradiction? So how do we think about that?
3: And I do so in this book. A whole, yeah, so I wrote a whole book about this. And so I, I do think that there is a contradiction between our, our experience and you know the sort of human experience of time and and, and physical time. So in the book, I ca- call the human experience of manifest time and uh, then physical time. You know, if we go back to you know the distinction Paul was making between the flow of time and the sort of direction of time. The, the way I would have put it is, you know, if you think of like a deck of cards and think of each deck as a uh, you know a spatial slice uh, at a moment. You know, there's a an ordering of all those cards. But this other idea of the flow of time is that there's some sort of like a special card. It's like turning, you know, yellow or something, and then that yellowness is moving through the deck. And that often is that is super important to human beings. You know, all of our language, thought, and behavior is all organized around that. There's all this uh, interesting work on the different cultures. Is it a uh, cultural universal and all of that? And the interesting thing is that all of that work about showing that different cultures represent time in different ways, they all represent that structure differently. So they're all actually implicitly agreeing on that. And so it's a very, very deep part of being a human is having this kind of flow of time model. Yet, yeah, I think like, like Paul, I think it's fundamentally inaccurate that it's, it's just not there. And what I try to do in the book is try to explain how it is that nonetheless it would make sense for a critter navigating through the world with the sort of physics and environmental challenges it faces to come up with this manifest time model. What I try to do in the book is try to show that that model, even though it's wrong from the point of view of physics, it makes sense for creatures like us that are navigating the world. Who have notions of uh, who are, have to put together all of this? You know, you're getting bombarded with all the stimuli. The signals don't say when they are when they occurred. You have to solve this kind of common cause problem about whether the tiger roar came, you know, from the same event as the 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 sight of the tiger opening its mouth. And you have to solve all these sorts of problems. You have to assemble this kind of uh, manifold in this way. Yeah. And so I think you can try to reconcile the two. I mean, not every philosopher has been happy with what I've done in the book, but I, I you know, I think it's a, a decent attempt and maybe I'll have a chance to talk about it later, but it, it actually does connect up with what Paul was saying about the self.
2: Yeah. So, so Paul, what are your perspectives on this? Since
5: yeah, can are- I just cl- clarify a few things? Cause um, people may have got the wrong end of the stick. When I say that, The flow of time is an illusion. I don't mean time is an illusion. There's only intervals of time. That's objective things. We measure them with clocks. Because people will often say, but we know that time flows because clocks measure the flow of time. That's common parlance. They don't measure the flow of time. They measure intervals of time. And I think the source of a lot of confusion is the word arrow. There are two sorts of arrows in the world. First of all, there's the arrow that you fire from a bow and off it goes, that's motion. And then uh, there's an arrow on a compass needle. And when a compass needle points north, it's indicating that there's an asymmetry between north and south, a geometrical one to do with the spin of the Earth. Uh, That's very clear. You don't have to be moving north. It doesn't tell you you're moving north. It's a static arrow indicating an asymmetry. So there's an arrow of time, if you like pointing from past to future, that indicates that there is a structural asymmetry in the world between more orderly processes earlier and less orderly processes later. All that is really thoroughly understood. But you don't have to be moving through time. And so we have this problem that our experience, uh, as Craig was just saying, that we'd be stranded if we had to abandon this metaphor of movement or motion. Um, It's a convenient way of talking about time and to deal with each other in the same way is very close analogies to free will, to freedom. We behave, we talk, we uh, organize our affairs as if we have choices and that there is a real freedom. Uh, if we didn't believe that, we couldn't really function. So I think that there are some illusions which are necessary for us to accept as human beings. One of these is the flow of time and the other is the existence of some sort of free choice. I think ultimately both of them might just go away Uh, but to to lead full lives, we have to embrace them both.
2: Right. So this always brings up the question for me, at least, if we have all of these illusions and our current laws of physics, which are also constructs of the human mind. So in some sense you can think of as an illusion in the sense that Hillary has been talking about their models. They're not necessarily reality. Disagrees with our perception. Do we believe the models or do we believe our perception? So Hillary, do you want to weigh on that? And then maybe we'll go to Laura. I'd like to, I'd like to get those sort of two perspectives from both of you.
4: Yeah, yes, absolutely. So I agree completely with where you were going with that. So uh, I don't think that we should any more think that uh, our experience of time as passage is any more an illusion than we should think that. The idea of a block universe where it's all given at the beginning is is true. I think we can see exactly the other way around, that the block universe is the illusion and that our own uh, own experience is a better guide. But actually, I wouldn't quite pose it like that. I think that they have different vocabularies and they have different outcomes. The scientific one of of the Einstein framework starts with the axiom about uh, the speed of light and it also has the axiom that laws govern the universe and that they, they apply the same all over at all times. Now, once you have those axioms, you have no choice really, because if you start out with the idea that there's a set of laws which governs everything, which is always the same, you are bound to end up with a world in which everything is given and that nothing apparently changes because it's all given at once. And it's just it just flows from the, the, the framework that it's set up, it, it functions like a model. It's like if we hold it as if it's like this, if we operate with the idea that the world is run by laws and that um, th- th- that sort of starting point, then we are going to end up with a block universe. And it will have consequences which don't make any sense, as Craig said, as Paul says, for our everyday life, you know, because there'd be no responsibility, there'd be no freedom, um, and so on. That doesn't make any sense. But it does make really good sense in another space. And so we should see that as models of the world, and that they enable us to do things. But it's not like there's one answer, and somebody has got it right.
2: So, so Laura, do you agree with this point that the models might tell us something about what's out there, but it doesn't need to change our perceptions of our own
0: experience of it? Uh, no. No, because uh, you you know, as a physicist, when uh, we talk of uh, theories and, and models, one of the criteria, uh, strong criteria we use, is testability. So of course they, they have to pass the, the scrutiny not of uh, not simply of of uh, our scientific minds, but uh, most importantly of uh, observation. So we can't say the same about. Um, consciousness, since we don't know, we don't have a theory of it, we can't subject it to experimental uh, data and observations. However, Hillary brought up the, the laws, and, and that's a completely different animal, as, as complicated as the nature of time. So I'll take the laws out of the picture for the moment, That we can discuss them in, in another debate. But speaking with time, simply put, Flow of time is is misleading and is wrong. There is no such thing as as a flow of time. Era of time is there and is for real. We can all tell the difference between past and future. The connection between consciousness and space-time, as far as I can see, boils down to the question why the biological era of time agrees with the cosmic era of time. In terms of having time built in, into our perception that that happens naturally because our perception and our consciousness are are, uh, products of uh, biological, neurophysiological processes, all of which counter changes. And and any change, whenever you have changes, like um, in in the case of the brain, neurotransmission or, or neuron firing, then you can measure that change with the clock. So there, there is the concept of, of time built right in, into there. Any, anything else that the closes, I, I can uh, get to, to any other uh, connection between consciousness and space. But time comes from Epicurus. He used arguments of uh, free will to practically end up with uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, to say that we need this work, the, the uncertainty built into the atoms in order to, to allow for free will. So that, that's, that's a beautiful example of, of relating free will in, in humans to yeah. a theory of nature, like uh, quantum mechanics
2: maybe a lovely segue um, into our next topic. I'll, I'll just jump in here. Um, so we've been kind of, um, you know, having this sort of discussion about human experience versus the laws of physics. And I think, Lori, you articulated very eloquently, you know, why we should believe the laws in terms of their testability and what we know of physics. Um, but we've also heard, you know, our experience is, is just as fundamental because it's a filter for those things. Um, and sometimes they lead to interesting intersections. So the next question is, how will we ever be able to escape the limits of our human experience if we can, um, and fully understand time and space from a new perspective. Um, so, Paul, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, yes, are we uh, going to be able to get around this debate of how we experience things versus how they really are?
5: Well, uh, I often uh, wonder if uh, in this age of AI, when uh, we can build computers that are so smart and uh, very soon they'll be doing most of the intellectual heavy lifting, and um, we get stuck up on these uh, problems, which have been around for thousands of years. And we're talking about one of them now, the nature of time. uh, And it may be that the reason that we're stuck is because uh, we're framing the problem the wrong way, uh, that we've perhaps got the wrong concepts. And we could uh, engage in a conversation with a really, really super duper computer, uh, and the computer might say, but you're asking the wrong question. And if you recast it in this uh, following way, following language, all of these difficulties you're having go away. And then the computer tries to explain to us uh, what's going on it's in its head of equivalent." Uh, And it's a bit like in Douglas Adams' story, The Computer at the End of the Universe. What is the answer to life, the universe and everything? And it comes back 42. And it means means nothing to us. So it could be that we are trapped uh, by uh, biology. Our cognitive architecture has evolved uh, to survive in the proverbial jungle. Uh, We've done incredibly well unraveling the secrets of the universe with uh, something that was really not. Uh, made for that purpose, Uh, but it could be that uh, we simply get stuck, we are uh, stuck with a particular conceptual framework, Uh, that's what we've got, and it's the wrong one for addressing these really big questions. And before I finish finish speaking, I do want to, at some stage, revisit what Hillary was saying about the immutability of the laws of physics, because that goes straight to theology, and the theologians just... Get uh, just as tangled as physicists about, you know, is God inside of time or outside of time and all that? And that, and it really is revisiting uh, that theological argument.
2: So, um, uh, Hillary, do you have a response to that? Cause that seems kind of directly aimed at sort of things you brought up earlier.
4: I think it, it's interesting in terms of it, exploring that whole, whole question of the immutable laws. Of course, there are some people. Now, who want to argue that we should consider the idea that laws aren't immutable. I mean, Lee Smolin, for example, has proposed this. This is really interesting because it's so radical as an idea of, of what, what that means. But I think my, my point would be that the frame that we put our theories in, as it were, the underlying structure of those have profound implications to the way they unwrap. And that doesn't mean to say that, that, that they're not in immensely powerful and, uh, uh, and so forth, and that we should replace them with the right one. I, think in, so I don't think there is a right one. I think that we adopt a vocabulary, we adopt a, a structure, and then we test it against the world, and we try and make it better and better. And that's how we get, you know, we refine our model. But I don't think the model ever sort of reaches through, as it were, to the universe. That's not what it's doing. And what, we, what we're about is choosing between models for different things. And we can try and have a unified model, and there might be re- very good reasons for doing that, but I, I don't think it's ever going to arrive. There are always going to be problems with every model. There's problems with the Newtonian model of, uh, of space and time, even before Einstein came along. Um, there are problems with the Einsteinian framework. There's problems with the everyday framework. There's always going to be problems with every framework, but they are useful. And they enable us to do things and we should rigorously try and improve them using the methodology of science and and, and indeed always try and come up with, with new ones, which will enable us to do things we can't do at the moment.
2: Yeah, so this brings in the point, um, I I just want to bring Laura in because she was making this point very nicely before about testability and that these theories have to always be tested against reality. So in some sense, I think, Laura, you had made the argument earlier that that made those models have a a more... Sort of a punch about how how well they can describe reality than our own perception, which might be flawed, do you think that that sort of progress in science is eventually going to get us to the truth and the human experience is kind of um you know superficial and and won't be part of that ultimate explanation, or how do you think about it?
0: <laughs> thats the hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh... <laughs> Uh, of course, the human perception sneaks in into the picture because whenever we are reporting data in order to test our theories, it is our interpretation of data based on a fiducial moment, on, on a favorite theory. So even testability is not completely 100% independent of, of uh, the human perception. However, the the, the more we debate and compare our different fields and, and uh, our different uh, perceptions. Hopefully we remove that kind of subjective perception out of the picture. So yes, the hope is that all the theories of nature and, and all the laws of nature and, and all the models and, and the processes that we discover and describe are uh, independent and, and are objective how far we are from that picture that, that uh, of course, depends on on uh, in, in the intellectual integrity and honesty of the scientists that are carrying out that goal. And I think we've done pretty well so far. So,
2: Paul, you were going to make a point before, and I cut you off
0: because I
5: wanted to... I was remember. just going to mischievously say uh, to Hillary, uh, and what about God? Is God inside of time, outside of time, or doesn't even exist?
6: <laughs>
5: you don't have to answer that. <laughs>
2: Oh, we got
4: to hear an answer. <laughs> I don't. I don't find it a very compelling story to propose a, a being which is going to explain things because you just got the question of well, what explains the being? So I don't well, think yes. you move exactly. forward further forward in terms of a of a structure of explanation. So, so doesn't exist seems to be your answer. Hmm. I, I wouldn't have such categorical because uh, that would I- I assume that we can somehow you know our what's in our theory exists or doesn't exist. I think we apply models. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, a model that uh, used uh, God as an explanation, I wouldn't find a very... Uh, not, not very helpful. Not, not very helpful. helpful, yeah. It's not going to take us very further forward. I, I, I'd, I'd uh, d- definitely be on the science side then. Uh, I'll just point to a, an
3: interesting topic. I mean, so the question is about whether we'd ever transcend the human experience of time. And, you know, of course, we can only understand what we can understand, Uh, So, and Paul, uh, interestingly, you know, imagined that kind of AI system that would be superior to us in coming up with something that maybe we wouldn't understand. I wanted to point, uh, you know, take this question in a different direction where I think that there's a lot of uh, unknown in science, which is to think about animals and animal experience of time. Not far from where I'm sitting right now, I have a tortoise, a desert tortoise. I recorded it eating. In, my, in its pen and I put it at eight times speed, it still looks slow when you play it. But now what, what's going on in the tortoise's experience? Is the tortoise experiencing things sort of as we do or is it experiencing it slower? As a giraffe is running and it's moving its hoof, you know, the, the signal has to go all the way up the leg and up to the brain and back and forth. Does the giraffe have not only long neck, but a long now? And, you know, so it's just tons of you know, seals. They live below, below the water and above the water. The speed of sound is so much different underwater than above water. How do they calibrate events? I, I think a lot of this is not known. Thinking about this puts us in our place when thinking about time.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on, um, being put in our place about all of these questions, because they're really big questions, um, and it's clear that we have not resolved the debate in just this one hour. So thank you all again, um, and I hope you enjoyed this period of time trying to move beyond space and time, and move beyond your space and time just a little bit. Um, so thank you all.
4: Thank you, sir. Thank you.
2: Thank
5: you.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
6: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.